for shepherding us in these dark times, but we get to be in the household of God with the people of God, which is a, a sweet gift. Um, AV team, could I have my first slide for this morning? Is that doable? All right. Well, in Hebrews 4.15, and, and uh, Ted just cited this in our prayer, the author of Hebrews is writing to first century Christian believers who are indeed suffering. Some have been put in jail, others have lost their homes, and they are suffering for their faith in Christ. And he writes to them in verse 15, and he says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this great high priest obviously is not the Pope. It's not John MacArthur. Hebrews 1.1 shows us this great high priest is the beloved son with whom God the Father is well pleased. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And this is not just the testimony of the epistle to the Hebrews, this is the testimony of the entirety of God's Word. We have a great high priest, if we are the children of God, who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and who has, in every respect, been tempted as we are with one difference. He is, He was, and He always will be without sin. So our Lord and Savior knows what it's like to be at weddings. He knows what it's like to be out at weddings that are longer than a day. And He knows what it's like to wake up on Sunday morning and serve the Lord in weakness and in frailty. And we see this in a much grander way in Matthew 4, our text for this morning, where the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness to be severely tested, just like He led the children of Israel into the wilderness around 1,440 years earlier. And just like He leads every true child of God through testing today, just because a New Testament has come just because Jesus has died and risen from the grave does not mean suddenly sons of God become something completely different, that there's a different blueprint or different standard, that we get a pass on suffering and humility and challenges and trials in our lives because Jesus did it for us. That is an aberrant and heretical view of the gospel. We see that Jesus has come, as Hebrews tells us, not so that we can bypass hardship and suffering and even death in this world, but instead that we have a great high priest who, through his spirit and through his good news and through the people of God, walks with us through the waters and fights for us and loves us and carries us through those hard times. We see, indeed, Jesus is not only the example for every true child of God, and He is indeed the example. He shows us what a son of God is. Do you want to know what a Christian is? Do you want to know what a son of God is? I spoke with a young man last week who explained to me, a Christian is someone who believes in Jesus. Well, as we see, 
And we will see this morning, even Satan, the devil, believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And he is going to burn in hell for eternity. No. Jesus is our example. And more than our example, showing us what a true child of God is. He's also the very thing we need in our times of suffering and in our times of pain, our times of sorrow and our hurt. He is more than an example. He is what we need. Because what we need most is the beloved Son of God with us and in us and walking us through the waters and the fires. And this is exactly who Jesus is according to God's Word. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. And we will start at verse 16 and read through verse 11. And this is the second part in our series on testing and temptation. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If You are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these I will give you. If you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Matthew 4, as you know, it begins with Jesus being led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Not by accident. The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Right after he has just been publicly affirmed by the Father that he is the beloved Son with whom God is well pleased. And as we noted last week, this is clearly not by accident. This is by intent. God is sovereign over this. And he's being led by the Holy Spirit into the place where the children of Israel rebelled and resisted the Lord's testing some 1,440 years earlier. Where they refused to trust and obey God's word. Where they chose intentionally to cling to their pride and their unbelief. And this was expressed in grumbling 
and in complaining and ultimately in challenging and testing God and as you read the account, as you've read, trying to lynch Moses at various times. And, you know, what they demonstrate to us very clearly is, brothers and sisters, and we're going to see this, sin, brothers and sisters, begins in the heart. Grumbling and complaining we sort of treat as a, a somewhat respectable sin and it becomes an art form in knowing how best to frame our grumbling and complaining so that it seems humorous or it seems funny or it seems like a jest or it's no big deal. But make no mistake, it is on account of what this displays. A heart of, heart of pride and unbelief that the children of Israel end up wandering in the wilderness for another 40 years as an explicit punishment for resisting and not being willing to be trained by the testing of the Lord. And it's worth pausing sometimes and considering in our lives, have we been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because we have been resistant to the training and the testing that God in love has sent to train us and to strengthen us and to teach us as sons about His great love for us. Well, we see here in this text, in contrast to the Israelites, where Jesus is showing us what a beloved son is, Jesus here humbly and willingly submits to the testing of the Lord. And this leads, brothers and sisters, as we've said before, not to a good time or a party or a big, huge celebration. This leads to being tempted by the devil not once, but three times. And in God's Word, God makes it very clear. First, He is sovereign and in complete control over both testing and temptation. But He also makes it very clear in His Word that testing and temptation are different. They may be similar, but they are not the same thing. And this is a place where many get confused and get discouraged and it's also a way in which many people make excuses for their sin. Well, the Lord here and in His Word, He makes it very, very clear there's a difference. And if we are to rightly respond to both, we need to first understand both, testing and temptation, not on the basis of our experience or our feelings, but through the light of God's Word. And that's exactly where Jesus takes us. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. Very simply, according to God's Word, there is a difference between trials and temptation. In both Hebrew and in Greek, the word that is used for testing and temptation is the same. There's one word in Hebrew, and it can be used for testing, and it can also be used for temptation. And similarly in Greek, the verb parazo, it can be used for testing, but it can also be used for temptation. Well, what's the difference? The difference is the context and the intent. The context and the intent. How is this word used? And as you go through Scripture, you see very, very, very consistently. The Lord in His Word makes a distinction in the context and the intent, the motive, the intention, and the goal of testing as opposed to temptation. 
And so even though there are some similarities between the two, they happen at similar times. In both situations, children of God are squeezed and they are pressed. And they are both things that put us in uncomfortable situations. And both can be associated with pain and suffering. They are, in fact, in the eyes of the Lord, different. In Scripture, the intent of a test is love. The intent of a test in God's hands is love. It's the goodness and it's the blessing and it's the benefit for the child being tested. That is the aim. The aim is to provide goodness and blessing and benefit for the child who's being tested. And as we learned last week, God's tests that He gives are the tests of a good father. He's not trying specifically in that nasty way we think of, oh, I'm just going to test this person and put them in their place. I'm going to belittle them. I'm going to make them small. He's putting us in our proper place. Okay, and that is a work for God. Let me remind you, not men. It's not our responsibility to come and put people in their places. God will do that just fine without us. God's tests are given by a good father. And they're given in love to instruct and train and strengthen a child so that that child might fulfill his or her calling as a son and daughter of a good father. And we see this in Exodus 20.20 where what's written is, Do not fear, this is Moses, do not fear, he's speaking to the people of God, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Now the fear he's talking about is not our ugly, dark fear. It is the wonder, amazement, reverence, and awe that we are in the presence of someone who is infinitely greater than we are. That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. God's testing them. He's training them. He's bringing challenges in their lives so that they will not sin. That's God's intent. And then if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. This is a passage that you are well familiar with in verse 2. Count it all what? Let me hear you say it. Count it all joy. Not some joy. All joy, my brothers. When you meet trials. Parasmon. Of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. Brothers and sisters. Why does God bring tests and trials into your lives? Some of which are painful. Some, many, all are hard. Difficult. Challenging? Is it because he's cruel and unkind? Well, according to James, it's because his desire in your life is that you would be complete, lacking nothing. The love of a father, a good father for his children, is that they would be complete and lack nothing. That's his desire for you. And drop down to verse 12, James 1:12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, parasmon. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, 
which God has promised to who? Those who love Him. What's God's intent? It's to show love, His desire for His sons and daughters is that they would receive the crown of life, that they would be exalted in due time, that they would be glorified, that they would be beatified, made beautiful. That's his intent, but it's a process, brothers and sisters, and it's especially a process in this difficult and sinful world. As you know, I like any sports teams or athletes who come from Canada. I have yet to be disappointed. There's one particular basketball player, I've mentioned one other, but there's another particular basketball player whose father allegedly would train him by making him shoot baskets repeatedly in the wintertime, in the snow, in the cold, at night, shot after shot after shot after shot. And then later when interviewed, he talked about how it was a preparation and it's what helped make him be someone, even though he would be down three games to one, to say, we haven't lost, I'm going to endure. I'm still going to fight. I am able to get through this, even though it's painful and hard and everyone is against us. And after he got his big contract and went home to Canada, talks about When I went home, people said, how did your life change? He said, when I went home, I slept on an air mattress. Same air mattress. Why'd you do that? I have a younger brother. And I want him to see that it's not about the money, and the money hasn't changed me. Now, we appreciate that because we can see the NBA, and we value it. We esteem it. We see the end. And we applaud that. What a great father. It's hard when it's the kingdom of heaven, and In our eyes, we can't see it. But I'm sure it wasn't easy for that child when the NBA seemed a long way away and he was out late at night in the ice and the cold shooting basket after basket. We're okay with making sacrifices, brothers and sisters, for material possessions and things in this world. But the test of a true child of God, will we by faith suffer and endure for something that is worth more than a place on an NBA roster. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Well, in Scripture, the intent of temptation is different. It's the opposite. The intent of temptation is malicious and it is evil. And the intent of temptation is to seduce, it's to lead into sin, it's to ensnare And it's to destroy our relationship with God. The intent of temptation is to drive a wedge in that right relationship with God. And if you drop down to verse 13. Could I have my next uh, slide please? Is that doable? James 1.13. James in this same passage. What does he say? Let no one say when he is tempted. Parazelment. Same verb. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts, paradzai, same verb, no one. Okay? Same word, but it's being used in two very different ways. And the point that's being made here is God is not evil, he has no sin, he cannot be tempted or enticed to do sinful things or evil or anything that's contrary to his character, neither will he entice anyone 
to do something that is contrary to his character or his will. That is not who God is. He's not waiting for you to fail. The immediate author of temptation is not God. God is sovereign over temptation. Absolutely. It is within his control and we're going to see how that plays out. But he is not the immediate author and he is not responsible and he is not the scapegoat, brothers and sisters, when we sin. Well, God made me do it. Well, he brought me into the wilderness. Well, he made me hungry. Well, he gave me a father who didn't love me. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, verse 15, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And here James rolls out the distinction with temptation. What is temptation about? It's an appeal to sinful desires that lure and entice us to do things that are contrary to the character and the word and the will of God. They're appeals to our pride and our unbelief. They are appeals that lead to death and separation from the life and love of God. Testing, brothers and sisters, is God's hard but necessary gift. Temptation is sin seduction. And in Matthew 4, God calls His beloved Son not only to endure testing, but He also calls His Son to resist temptation. And brothers and sisters, if we are going to truly be sons of God and daughters of God, if we are going to be children of God, like Jesus, living in this sinful world, we too must face both trials and temptations. They're coming. You don't have to go looking for them. They're coming for you. And how we respond will demonstrate if indeed we are truly children of God or we are children of the devil. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. Our second point for this morning. God sovereignly calls His Son to endure testing and to resist temptation. How? According to His Word. And I want to draw your attention as we walk through this to see how Jesus responds. That there is a distinction not only in what testing and temptation is, both sovereignly under God's control, but there is also a difference in the way the Lord calls us to respond. Testing, we endure. But temptation, we reject and we resist. And they're very, very different. Well, why does God do this? Why does He call His Son to endure testing and resist temptation? It's because this is necessary for faithful children of God in a sinful world. Because it's love. We were all, most of us, many of us, last night at a wedding. We say, oh, this is Jesus, the Son of God. Think about it for a husband. Think about it for a father. What do you need to stay faithful to your wife and to love your children? Is running every time you're tested going to love and protect your family? Is giving in to temptation 
and being unfaithful, or at least thinking about it, or talking about it, and lingering over it, is that love that's going to build up and protect your family? Well, we would all say, no, absolutely not. But somehow as children of God, we take a different standard and we say it's okay. Well, God is teaching us through Christ. Love is about faithfulness. And it's about sacrifices and suffering for someone other than ourselves. Why am I hurting so much? Why is it so hard? Well, guess what? If you love someone in this world and in this life, there is necessarily going to be hardship and suffering that is not for your benefit. Oh, I get a great pie in the sky afterwards. You may never see any benefit. But as Jesus demonstrates in the heart of God the Father, it's necessarily entirely for the love of someone else other than yourself. And that's what love is, brothers and sisters. At least the love of God. And in Matthew 4, 1 and 2, Matthew shows us how Jesus' wilderness experience begins with the same test that the Lord God gave Israel 414 years earlier. And the same test, quite frankly, that he gives, guess what? Good news. To every true child of God, without exceptions. Will we humbly trust God our Heavenly Father? Will we humbly submit and follow the leadership of the Spirit rather than our flesh? Will we humbly obey God's Word? Even if it means living in a hard and cursed wilderness. Even if it means being uncomfortable. Even if it means having to depend on God the Father for everything and not knowing where our next meal is coming from, even if it means suffering to do God's will. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just for Jesus. This is for missionaries. This is for church planters. And guess what? It's for church members too. The Masters Academy International just sent a letter out. And in it was a testimonial from students in the Ukraine. And they talked about the encouragement that they had that their American professors made the decision not to leave and evacuate. As President Biden asked, but instead they felt it was their conviction to stay with the people of God and the calling that God had given them. Now, I wouldn't fault these men if they chose to leave. And there are other considerations to, you know, take into consideration, including God's call for a father, a family, those things. Nonetheless, nonetheless, as we think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer being offered some of the most prestigious professorships in America in World War II, and yet unable to sleep, and finally convicted that he needed to go back to Germany for what purpose? To be with the people of God. And in his heart saying, if I do not suffer and walk with them during the war, how can after in the exaltation, in good conscience, can I stand with them? Well, 
There was a man, and these are men, who knew their Savior, who knew who Jesus is. And brothers and sisters, it's true, not for Christian celebrities. It's a test that simply proves whether we know Jesus and whether we know His love. And it's ultimately given, brothers and sisters, for God to show His love to us. And we never, brothers and sisters, fully appreciate and know the depths of God's grace and His love until we've walked through the testing. New Testament scholar Craig Keener writes, Disciples are destined for testing. Disciples are destined for testing. In order to show us the depths of God's grace that sustains us. In order to show the depths of God's grace that sustains us. So here's the question. Will we humbly follow God's word? Will we patiently endure his testing as beloved sons? Will we wait, brothers and sisters, to see his grace? Or will we pridefully rebel and run in unbelief and bitterness and discontent and say we don't believe it because we never saw it. God is not gracious. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we don't know the love of God or appreciate His grace because we've never waited long enough to see it come. Well, in verse 2, Jesus endures 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And He does so without food and He does so to the point of intense hunger. And he does this, as we've said before, without grumbling or complaining or questioning. And why does he do it? Because he is a faithful son. And he's someone who understands testing, as we've said before, not according to his feelings or experience, but according to God's word. In Exodus 24, 18 and Exodus 34, 28, two times in the wilderness, Moses fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And both of the times he does that, he does that in order to be with the Lord God on the top of Mount Sinai. He does it not once, he does it twice. And he does it when he goes up to Mount Sinai to be in the presence of the living God. But what's worth noting, and you can do your homework and go and read this. Moses isn't going up and he isn't fasting to be with God and he isn't going to be with God. He's not doing it for himself. Who's he doing it for? He does it for others, very specifically the children of Israel. He does it for others. And he does it very specifically to intercede on their behalf. The first time he goes up to take the covenant after they've agreed to the covenant and to go before the Lord. It's part of the covenant ratification. He's representing the people. He's acting as the prototype of a high priest to represent the people before God. And so he ratifies this covenant. He's their representative before God. But while he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, what happens? It's party time down below. Where's this guy gone? It's been a while. Aaron, what's going on? Who's going to lead us? Is he ever going to come back? And so they build a golden calf. And they break the covenant that they have just committed to. You'll have no other gods before me. You won't make graven images. See, they go through it. They break it right away. They fail the test. They demonstrate in their hearts they are really not children of God. 
So Moses goes up a second time. And why does he go up a second time? He goes up to plead with God for mercy. That's what we just sang, that Danny led us through the song. Right? He goes to beg on their behalf and plead for the mercy. He intercedes on their behalf. Now, allegedly, the body can only survive for 8 to 21 days without food or water. So what does Moses fasting for 40 days and 40 nights reveal? Shows us that for Moses, there is something more important, more urgent, more necessary than food, than water, than a job, than a church, than a house, than a family, than a spouse, than children. And what could be more important than all of these things? For Moses, it doesn't matter. If I die here, I die here. What's more important? It's a right relationship with the one true God. It's a right relationship with the one who is Lord of life, according to his word. And Moses is willing to sacrifice his life for the salvation of his people, to beg for mercy. Moses is willing to trade his life for theirs. Moses is willing to lay his life in the hands of God for God to sustain in contrast to the children of Israel below. The test of God's word, brothers and sisters, is the Lord more important than all these things? Is a right relationship with the Lord, not just I believe in Jesus, is a right relationship with God on His terms, not my terms. Is it more important than all of these things? And the testimony of God's word is that what God began with Moses and what Israel failed to complete, Jesus came to finish. He came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to give his life, not for himself. He came to save his people from their sins. And the test that Israel and that we fail repeatedly, Jesus succeeds. He graciously and humbly endures God's testing in the wilderness. And where does this lead to? What is the outcome of this? Verse 2, it's the humility and suffering of hunger. It's the humility and suffering of loneliness. There is no big party. There is no big group of friends. There is no family. There is no feast. He is hungry, and from a human perspective, he is alone. And this is exactly when, verse 3, the tempter comes to him. Throughout Scripture, brothers and sisters, temptation comes very often at two times. After our great successes, when we feel it's all done, good to go. But it also comes in our times of testing and our times of suffering and pain and loneliness. Because the tempter summarizes the name of the devil or Satan, the adversary or the slanderer. This is all he is and this is all he does. He comes as a predatory serpent or animal to come in at our moments of weakness and frailty to begin wedging and putting in a wedge between our relationship with the Lord and our lives. 
He is the very real fallen angel whose primary activity is to come in and damage our relationship and raise doubt about the goodness and love of our Father. And he comes with evil intent, and he comes as a whisperer, and he comes seeking to tempt, malicious intent, to seduce and destroy with half-truths and lies. He comes with the intent to stir up our pride and unbelief. He comes with the intent of raising in our hearts questions. Is God really good if I'm suffering this way? Can God be gracious when I'm alone? Can God be gracious when I don't have A, B, C, D, or E? And He comes to lead willing hearts to sin and death and separation from God and His Word. And this is what we see in verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Well, what's so wrong with that, brothers and sisters? You're hungry, what's so wrong? Jesus is going to feed 5,000 later. He's going to make food for other people to eat. What's the big deal? Where in Scripture does it say, Thou shalt not turn stones into loaves of bread? Where in Scripture does it say, Thou shalt not look for food to make your life better or to minimize or end your suffering? I had one person call me with the question. They were from Northern Cal. I was in Southern Cal. What's the big deal? Where in the Bible does it say you can't smoke weed? Didn't God make weed? Didn't he make the whatever plant from which we get our cocaine from Colombia? Didn't he make the grape from where wine comes from? What, why, what, where does it say thou shalt not drink alcohol? What is the big deal? Pastor Mark, what a prude you are. And brothers and sisters, this is the way the tempter and temptation always comes. It comes as a whisper. It comes as a suggestion that this is not a big deal. We're making a bigger deal of it than we should. It comes with a harmless offer to help. How many times have we had people come alongside and give offers for help and suggestions of how things, there's a better way, there's a, in church ministry, let me tell you, Day and night, there's a better way to do this. There's a better way to do this. Why do you got to do it the hard way? Why do you have to make it difficult for everyone? A better way to handle God's testing, an easier way with less suffering. Why does it have to be so hard? And Jesus' response shows us why. And he shows us just how deadly and deceitful this seemingly innocuous question is. And this brings us to our Final point for this morning. Faithful sons immediately expose and reject temptation with God's word. Faithful sons immediately expose and reject temptation with God's word. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't linger. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't say, well, let me look this up on the internet and research whether this is really okay or not okay for me to do it. Or uh, let me see what we should do about this. Or maybe it's okay if I look into this a little bit and see about turning stones into bread. Verse 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Without hesitation and delay, Jesus immediately rejects everything the tempter has suggested. Brothers and sisters, when temptation comes your way, don't linger. 
That's what children of the devil do. That's what fools do. That's what simple people do. When Satan comes and temptation comes, you refute it immediately with God's word. And so the implication of that statement is, if you don't know God's word, you're going to have a hard time refuting or discerning temptation when it comes. And as Ted has taught us, this week in Lagos, what's the test of someone who should be a leader in the church? Well, they have to have been tested. And they have to demonstrate, not only are they to affirm what is good, they're able to discern what is not good, even when it comes in subtle ways, because deacons and servants and discipleship group leaders, it's the guys who lurk in the back in the shadows who come to, well, I'm not so sure about this. Are you sure about this? And if all you do is go ask Pastor Mike, I'm not sure about it either, then hey, guess what? There's a lot of people in this church who aren't sure about this. Why are you the only one who stands against it? And then it starts and it starts and it starts and it starts. Look at our Lord and Savior because He knows, knows the Word of God. And this is why He brings testing into our lives, brothers and sisters. So it's not just head knowledge that's useless on a shelf and you're just reciting Bible verses. You know what it means and you know what's at stake and you know that souls and lives are at stake. A right relationship with God. Notice what else Jesus does not do. He does not appeal to his hunger, his loneliness, his suffering, or his need in this discussion. How often in the counseling room is an excuse given for blatant and unrepentant sin? I was lonely. I was tired. I was hungry. I was not loved by my parents. All of that may be true, brothers and sisters, but it's a deflection that tries to pull us into sympathy for all the terrible things as an excuse for not loving God, for not trusting God, for not obeying where the Lord has clearly written what is pleasing to Him and what is protective for His children. Jesus does not do that. By faith, he immediately appeals to the power, the authority, the sufficiency of words that were written by God through Moses 1,440 years before. And as he does this, he exposes the dark truth that Satan seemingly harmlessly, or what he attempts to make as harmless, a harmless suggestion. He shows that this is about more than just food. And it's more than just about comfort. And it's more than just about needs. This is about a right relationship with God according to His Word. If you have your Bibles, go back to Deuteronomy 8. Jesus knows the context of the verse that He is citing. Deuteronomy 8.2 It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. The testimony of God's Word. What we must not forget first. God's children may feel lonely and hungry in the wilderness, but they are never alone. They are never alone. God says to them, don't forget, I led you the entire 40 years. I was with you every step of the way. Your good times, your bad times. When you were hungry, I was not absent, I was present. What's the temptation of Satan? Is God really around? 
Testimony of God's word. The Lord their God is always leading, always loving, always caring for his children every step of the way. What Satan is doing is he's drawing a wedge in what a child of God is. The second thing, according to God's word, humility and suffering are a necessary gift of God's love for his children. Humility and suffering are a necessary gift of God's love for his children. The rest of verse 2. God led you these 40 years in the wilderness. The Lord God led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you. Testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. Humility and suffering exposes whether we are truly children of God or not. I had one brother last week ask me, well, how do we know if we're really saved? What is assurance of salvation? Well, when you go through tests. And humility and suffering comes your way. And you go through the test by God's grace. And you see how God carries you through. And you look back. You know, wow, I was loved. I was cared for. God was present. I am indeed a child of God. But if you run or you're like Judas and you sell out for 30 pieces of silver, then you know you've got some repenting to do because you're not right with the Lord. What does he go on to say? And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And why did he do this? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Humility and suffering in this fallen world show us that there is something more urgent, more important, more necessary for life than food or friends or family. And what is it? It's a right relationship with God. That necessarily involves being completely dependent on God's Word. Why? Because only God's Word and ultimately God's Word gives us life and love. And apart from His Word, there is no life, there is no love, and there is no right relationship with God. And this is what Jesus affirms when he says to Satan, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it is this truth that exposes the subtle suggestions of Satan's temptation. When Satan says to him, If you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, he's suggesting that as a Son of God, you have the right, you have the privilege, you have the power, you have the authority to do whatever you want. God does not care. He is not present. He has left you alone. You have the right to figure it out on your own. What Satan is suggesting is what we hear from the world today. Humility, suffering, loneliness, hardship, that's for losers. There's a better way. Self-sufficiency, independence, using your power, authority, privilege, your talents, your giftedness, using it for yourself. Does that sound familiar, brothers and sisters? That is the way of the world. 
You become successful. You become independent. You become wealthy. And then you can serve other people. And then you can help people. You can build hospitals. You can send missionaries. You build a great church. You bring them in. And then you can do this great work, which everybody says, how great is God? Jesus here says, that is a lie from the pit. It's a path of Harry Potter and Michael Jordan and every other hero that this world sells us. Use your giftedness to get independence and self-sufficiency so that you can be great and then you can start schools and help kids who don't have an education get to college. Well, with God's word, Jesus shows he has not come to use his power and his authority and his privilege to make his life better. He has not come to make other people's lives better. He has come to sacrifice his rights, his power, his authority, his privilege for sinners like us. To show us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he will do this all the way to the cross. And his humbling and his suffering is necessary for us to forgive us of our sins, to provide salvation, and to show heaven and earth what a true child of God is. Brothers and sisters, this is what a beloved and faithful Son of God is and does. And as Jesus endures this testing and He resists Satan's temptation, He shows us God's infinite goodness and love for His children. He shows us that God is not absent in His suffering and temptation. He is present. And He shows us that God is sovereign and He is greater than both our testing and our temptation. So this puts a simple question before us, brothers and sisters. Are you a child of God? And that comes to the issue. How do you respond to the trials and tests the Lord God is bringing your way. If you are a child of God, brothers and sisters, then this should bring you hope. But let's check our hearts first and make sure indeed, indeed, we are children of God. It's more than just saying, I believe in Jesus. As I said before, Satan knows the Word of God, and Satan believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He is unwilling to trust in the goodness and grace of God. He is unwilling to obey His commands. He is unwilling to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Look at the testimony and pattern of your life and be honest. And if the Lord is showing you that you are not a child of God, then there is hope for you. And that hope is repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Urgently this very day. God gives trials and tests to remove illusions and self-deceit so we can know where we stand. And for both sinner and saint, they're a blessing. But for the true child of God, brothers and sisters, and if you are indeed, and you are going through a hard time right now, and many of you are, then you can count it all joy. Why can you count it all joy? 
Because everything that you need, God has given you in Christ. Hebrews 4.15 You are not alone even though you feel alone. God is present fighting for you. How is He present in your life fighting for you? He has given you the gospel, the power of God for salvation for all men. He has given you His Spirit. He has given you His Word. He is present in power and authority and strength and goodness. And He's given you the people of God. And where two or three are gathered in my name in obedience to God's word, there Christ is present. And that's why when you're struggling, brothers and sisters, don't be alone. Make every effort to be with the people of God. Even if you have to text and call and say, I need help. People of God, what is our responsibility? As you read the end of Hebrews, you see that for those who are going through tests and trials, those who are suffering, and those who Satan is coming and tempting, we need to reach out and be with them in some way, to love them and walk with them. Many of the commandments about a cup of cold water, taking care of people, ministering to people, they aren't about building soup kitchens. Now, I'm not saying we don't feed the poor, but you go and look. It's about taking care of the people of God who are suffering because of their faith in Christ. Our responsibility, because one of the ways God is present in people who have been tested, who minister graciously and with sympathy to those who are weak and being tested, and to remind them they are not losers, but they are like Jesus Christ, the ultimate victor and champion. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, how you love us and what we need so desperately is you and yet you've given yourself to us through your gospel, through your word, through your spirit and mercifully through the family of God. Thank you for these things. In your name we pray. Amen.